0: CrossPoint Church's weekly sermon audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about CrossPoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter three. Let's get to work. We've got uh, some some beautiful truths to unpack today. I think if you're using one of the few Bibles, that's on verse or page six seventy-one. We, if you're joining us for the first time today, have been working our way through a series in 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, which we have uh, creatively entitled 1 Corinthians, and so we are in chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3, and then we're going to probably cover the first few verses of chapter 4, and the reason is, is you, you know that when uh, the Apostle Paul and the other Bible writers, Peter and Luke and, and the Old Testament writers, wrote The Bible, the books that we know as the Bible, they didn't include chapter and verse numbers. That was a later addition to kind of help us sort of find our way around in the Bible. And sometimes uh, the flow of thought doesn't really break at where they break the chapters and the verses. And so I think there's a real flow, a consequence of what we're going to read in the end of chapter 3 that we see in chapter 4. And so let me do this. Let me read this scripture and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to work our way back through these, these verses. Now let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of the stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God well this verse is one of the reasons why i think it is particularly important that we preach through books of the bible most of the time this is not one of those verses or passages that i would just sort of land on if i were coming up with things to preach because at least on the surface, there are no statements or sentences that just reach out and grab you. And as preachers like to say, yeah, that'll, that'll preach. But as we dig into this, there is unbelievable beauty and depth and wisdom in these two paragraphs. If I could kind of summarize it for you. Here's, here's the two major thoughts that I want to put in your head. Paul is saying in that first paragraph that we read, the end of chapter 3, that we are full of, in Christ. He says that all things are ours. We are full in Christ. And then implied in the next paragraph, the first five verses of chapter four, we see this amazing internal, emotional, spiritual freedom in Christ that Paul speaks about. And so the first thought is that we are full in Christ. And the second thought is that we are free in Christ because of our fullness. And so if you could, in one sentence, just sort of summarize this particular passage in my message today, it would be that understanding fullness in Christ leads to freedom in Christ, which produces fruitfulness in Christ. Understanding our fullness in Christ leads us to freedom in Christ, which then produces a fruitfulness in Christ in the life of of a believer. Today we're going to talk about some of the, just the core doctrines of what Christ has done for us on the cross, the fullness of Christ. And then we're going to look very briefly at how that applies to our everyday life. Now, as we're teaching and preaching on these things, you may be tempted to say, "Ah, oh, I know that. I know that. I got that one. But let me read to you a quote from uh, a man that you know I respect very well. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He was the great pastor and theologian of the colonial America. He was the pastor and theologian behind the Great Awakening in the 1700s, probably the greatest theological mind ever in America, one of the greatest theological minds ever since the Bible writers, and probably the greatest American mind ever, not just in theology, but in all that he did. An incredible, incredible uh, uh, mind. And he wrote... Uh, 70 daily resolutions when he was a 21 year old man and they are profound I encourage you to google that if you haven't ever read those and read those And he also wrote a letter to a young convert. He was preaching when he was later on in his pastorate was preaching Doing some traveling preaching and there was this young lady in one of the congregations that he visited That wrote him a letter and asked him to give her advice on how to live as a christian and amidst all of his duties as a pastor of a a a revival in a huge church in, in, uh, in New England. He wrote this young lady, and this is what he says, and he's speaking here about the need of a Christian to dwell on and revive their hearts and think about the wonders of what Christ did on the cross for us, which we're going to talk about today when we speak about fullness in Christ. This is what he says. Don't slack off seeking, striving. And praying for the very same things that we exhort unconverted persons to strive for. And the degree of what you have had in conversion. In other words, what he's saying is kind of that, that, that eagerness in your heart that you came to the Lord with and then you became a Christian. Whenever that happened in your life, when Jesus rescued your soul and made you alive, that passion, that newness, that, that earnestness that you had for the Lord then sometimes seems to die off once you become a Christian. And it's kind of like, yeah, I got this. No, I, I know this gig. And, and Edwards is saying, don't do that. He says, thus pray that your eyes may be open. He's speaking to Christians now. Pray that your eyes would be open, that you may receive your sight, that you may know yourself and be brought to God's feet, and that you may see the glory of God in Christ. May be raised from the dead and have the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. What a sentence. Those that have the most of these things, meaning Christians, still need to pray for them. For there is so much blindness and hardness and pride and death remaining that they still need to have that work of God upon them further to enlighten and enliven them. So let me pray and let me ask that we would do that as we think about what Christ has done for us on the cross and how unbelievably applicable this is in our everyday lives. Lord, we thank you for your scripture. For Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we believe that it is completely true and without, without error. We believe that it is divinely inspired. We believe that you breathed out these words through men who wrote them down by the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And that what we have now before us in our language is an accurate representation of your holy and completely true Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves as we come to it. We are Americans who are proud and haughty. We think that we can put you in a box and pull you out whenever we need you. But Lord, in fact, you are the creator. And you give us your words of life that demand us and call us to repent and trust and worship you alone. So Lord, I pray today that you would, as Edwards has written to the Christians in this room, that you would... Stir our hearts that you would shed the love of Christ abroad in us. And for those that are in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they realize they are lost or whether they do not realize they are lost, I pray, God, that you would shed abroad the saving love of Christ in their hearts so that today they would be born again and you would make them alive, as we sang about earlier. Do this, I pray, for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get to it. These first, this first paragraph at the end of chapter three, I think speaks about our fullness in Christ. Paul speaks to the Corinthians, and he sort of summarizes his argument up to this point in the last three chapters. He started off by thanking God for them, even though they were a they were a very wicked, carnal, selfish congregation. He actually spent some time thanking God for them. That's a that's that's very. Um, that's very instructive to us, especially when we rub up against Christians that drive us crazy. People that really rub us the wrong way. Paul had an issue with the Corinthians, but he spent some time thanking them, seeing the Christ in them. He then speaks about divisions in the church from the rest, for the next part of chapter 1. And he's talking about Paul and Apollos and, and just a little... A little modern day application here. If the football game did not go your way yesterday, uh, I want you to be reminded that Paul speaks against factions in the church. And if the football game did go your way yesterday, I want to remind you about humility in Christ. And so he speaks about divisions in the church. And then in the end of chapter 1, he talks about the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel. That it's Christ alone that saves us and makes us His. And that He gives us His righteousness. And then in chapter 2, he speaks about this, sort of this human worldly wisdom that they were relying on, which we could sort of equate to sort of self-help techniques in our day. And Paul is saying, don't rely on that, but rely on the rugged, simple, raw, and even seemingly foolish wisdom of the gospel. And then in chapter 3, he picks up divisions again, and now he is summarizing his argument up to this point at the end of chapter 3. And he's saying, don't deceive yourself. Become a fool. Don't buy into the cheap, broken self-centered, man-centered wisdom of this world, but trust alone in Christ. He catches the, the wisdom of this world and he, he makes it as foolishness. And so he says, boast in Christ alone. And then he says this sentence in verse 21, which I think is unbelievable. It's profound in its implications. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then he goes on to verse 22 and he says, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so I want to give us just a few implications of what those words all are yours mean for us. I have six quick points under this, this, this little heading here of implications of the word, of these words by Paul, all things are yours. And these are things that are just absolutely foundational to Christianity and absolutely applicable to the life of a believer, whether you've been a believer for a day or 50 years. The first thing that is ours in Christ is salvation. We have been saved. Now, when we say salvation, we just sort of throw it around in church culture and in preaching and in teaching as if we sort of all know what we're talking about. And this this is something that we need to continually remind ourselves because we as Americans are born into a world and born into a culture and born into a mindset where we basically think we're okay. We treat Christianity and the Bible as if it is a very helpful add-on that will just help you live a better life. But maybe it's not completely necessary. And friends, nothing, absolutely nothing. If you've grown up in a church that just reads stories and gives you three little points on how to have a better Tuesday, I want you to know that you have been deceived. Maybe not intentionally, but you have been lied to by a watered-down gospel which is no gospel at all. The first and most fundamental truth of the Scriptures is that we are rebellious, dead glory thieves and that we deserve God's righteous judgment. That's the way we are all born by nature and by choice. And we need not just help. We need to not get our lives back on track. We don't need to Start living a little bit better. Every person in this room needs to be saved. We need salvation. And that's the first benefit that is ours in Christ if you are a believer. We need to be saved from death, from spiritual death. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. You can just write them down. If you don't want to flip there, we'll have them up on the screen. And they'll be in our notes on the Internet, on the website when we post this tomorrow. But this is what Paul says about how we've been saved from death and made alive by Christ, saved from spiritual death. In Ephesians 2, 1-5, through 5, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We read this scripture a lot here. It is, I believe, verses 1-10 through 10 of Ephesians 2 are pro- is probably the most thorough and rich statement of the gospel in the entire Bible. And you would do well if you were not familiar with those 10 verses to meditate on them again and again and again, and chew on them, and let the truth of what Christ has done for those that will believe in Him, let it sink deep into your heart and then let it propel you into godliness. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to this verse three, among whom we all once lived kids from Georgia, kids from from uh, California, people from Brazil, Auburn fans, Georgia fans, Florida fans, army fans, definitely Navy, Navy fans. We all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh. Every person, the most righteous Christian, the most holy seemingly person in this room, the leader of the denomination that you came from, the faithful Bible preacher that you grew up listening to, your mom, your dad, your sweet grandma, your grandpa that helped build the church and has his name somewhere on the wall. Every person saved Jesus except for Christ was born dead in their trespasses and sins and rebelled against God. That's all of us. We all, verse 3, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature as a consequence of our rebellion. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now let's stop there and say we need to do some work there because let's admit, it is counterintuitive for us as Americans. We think we're basically pretty good people, don't we? Because we are judging ourselves compared to other folks. And so as I look at the cat next to me and I say, Well, I'm not as messed up as he is. I take solace in that. But that is an empty false comfort. Because in my heart, I have rebelled against my Creator. And even if I haven't engaged in blatant sin, and by the way, all of us do to some level, but even if I haven't engaged in blatant public overt sin, even my trusting in my own reality, in my own morality is a sign of my idolatry because I am basically saying before the creator of the universe who created me for his glory that I can trust in myself compared to the guy next to me. And I am making my own righteousness my God, which is a false God. And so as a result of our rebellion against the... Sovereign Creator of all things, we are by nature children of wrath, like, like ch- children of wrath, like everybody else. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so, the beauty and the scandal of the gospel, and why it is such amazing good news, is that as we sang earlier: you can't save yourself. But Christ saves us by making us alive. And when God decides to rescue a human soul out of death and rebellion, He does all the work. He does all the saving. And He makes them pass from spiritual death into spiritual life. Secondly, we are saved. It's still under salvation here. This is still under point number one. We are saved from sin. This is what Paul writes in Romans 6. Verses 6-7, through we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so we are saved not just from spiritual death and made alive so that we can know Christ and enjoy Him forever, but we are also rescued or saved from the power and the consequences of sin in our life. Now, does this mean that Christians are sinless? Well, No. No, we, we obviously we know each other. We know that we are still very much in process. But think of sin in these three categories. Think of the presence of sin in your life. Think of the power of sin in your life. And think of the penalty of sin in your life. When Christ rescues you and causes you to become a Christian, He immediately rescues you from the penalty of sin, which we'll read about in just a second. It is gone. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are right as you stand before God. He also breaks the power of sin in your life by giving you His Spirit, by giving you the righteousness of Christ. And so one of the first evidences of you being a true Christian is is that you should start to notice in your life an increasing ability, even if it is very small and incremental. You should start to notice in your life an ability to overcome through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, an ability to resist and overcome sin in your life. Does that mean that you won't occasionally fall? No, but it means that there should be this ever-increasing ability to live more like Christ. That process, process is called sanctification, and that's one of the benefits of salvation, that Christ has broken the power of sin in your life so that you can live for Him, in ever-increasing Christ-likeness in your life. And then the third one is the presence of sin. Again, the presence of sin does not immediately leave our lives when we are saved. But again, over time, the presence of sin should become more and more minimal in our lives. And then ultimately, when we are before the Lord, it will be ultimately finally erased from our lives when we are glorified. This is the beauty of salvation. And then... Again, under salvation, we are saved from God's wrath, which is the penalty of sin. This is a wildly unpopular theme in the American church today. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that God is righteous and just, and, or many people do. I shouldn't say nobody, but oftentimes people don't talk about the fact that we are saved, not from a bad life. We're not even saved from hell. We're not saved from Satan. We're not saved from a less than optimal internal emotional life. We are saved from God. By God, for God. Listen to this. Romans 5 verse 9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God is holy. He's righteous. He demands that those whom He created, which is everybody, repent and believe and trust in Him and mirror His glory to this world. And... At when we breached that in our rebellion and sin, the consequences of that are huge. It's not a less than optimal life. It is the wrath of God. And what should this produce in us, knowing that we are saved from death, from sin, and from God's wrath? This should produce in us worship and thankfulness and humility. A proud, arrogant Christian, that's an oxymoron. It should not exist. And then do you see how this filters into your daily life and how it filters into a group of people who live together as a church? Arrogance and backbiting and, 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 and pride should, should be utterly destroyed in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. And what should, what should rise should be this humble, Christ-centered aroma and thankfulness and gratitude, man. That's right there. If, if we would all just wrestle with that and grab a hold of that. Think how that would transform our marriages and our parenting and our work lives and our Facebook posts. You know? I mean, come on. Just read, just read the Facebook posts of some people that you know to be confessing Christians. I hate my job. It's Monday again. Shoot me in the head. This is terrible. Well, praise Jesus. You, 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 you... you. I mean, think about what this should produce in us, this, this unbelievable joy in all things. That's not to say that we detach our mind from reality and, you know, when we stub our toe, we just, oh, thank you, Jesus. Or, you know, we have some problem that we, that we just sort of detach from reality. And, I mean, those are the type of people you want to smack. But there's this gravitas and this Christ-centered orientation that rests on a person when they understand what they've been saved from it is an abiding joy and it permeates all of their life this is what this is what Spurgeon wrote in his in his lectures to my students this is a book by Charles Spurgeon my historical hero pastor in London in the mid 1800s if you are a young man that wants to someday think about the ministry or is interested in ministry I would recommend that you get this book, Lectures to My Students. And this is what Spurgeon says about this issue of realizing what Christ has done in us and how He has saved us and how important that is. He says in our preaching, we should aim at the heart, probe the wound, and touch the very quick of the soul. Spare not the sterner themes. For men, listen to this, for men must be wounded before they can be healed, and slain before they can be made alive. No man will ever put on the robe of Christ's righteousness till he is stripped of his fig leaves. Nor will he wash in the fount of mercy till he perceives his filthiness. That's why we spend so much time here talking about our need for salvation and sin and the consequences of it. Because we need to have our fig leaves stripped and as C.S. Lewis wrote in the 1940s, that before you can preach salvation or the gospel or the cure for mankind's ailment, which is Christ alone, to the Western mind, you must first first preach the disease. So we are saved from death, from sin, from God's wrath. And this should produce utter joy and humility in us that should transform and permeate our daily lives. Secondly, we're saved from the forgiveness of sins. Let me work through this quickly. We are saved. or We are, we are rescued. We are full in Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, this is one of the most glorious scriptures in the Bible, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So what this verse is saying is that every sin that you have committed, past, present, and future as a Christian, that there is forgiveness and there is grace in the Lord. And when we repent of our sins, there is forgiveness of sins and the accusation of your own soul and the accusation of the forces of hell that want to disqualify you over and over and over again are pinned to the cross and carried away to never be remembered no more. So that means that for the Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that when I am awake at night, not able to sleep because of some guilt or thing that I feel about in my past or even some present moment of failure that this truth should wash over my heart and give me sleep and joy and rest in the good, powerful, forgiving grace of God. Are you vexed in your soul? Are Are you plagued by insecurity and guilt? Let this truth pound your soul with the joy of forgiveness of sins. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, He has removed our transgressions as far as the east is. From the West. Think about that. Think about those of us that coddle and hold on to our past failures. And and what we're saying there, the beautiful hands of our Savior Jesus are wanting to take our sin that he has already forgiven and died for and remove it as far as the East is from the West, which is from infinity to infinity. And we are grabbing a hold of it like a little child with a toy saying, no, 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 don't take this from me. That's our mindset when we refuse to receive the grace of God for the forgiveness of sins. So we are given salvation. We're given the forgiveness of sins. We're given justification, which is right standing with God. We're given justification this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 through 25 which Martin Luther the great reformer said was the whole it was the center of the Bible when he started to read this book Romans for himself he came across Romans and it absolutely devastated him and he got up from God knocking him off of his horse and started this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant revolution or Reformation, which was a revolution. And this is what he writes, and this is what Paul writes in Romans 3, 21-25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning Jesus, who's the righteousness of God, has been given apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning it's pointing to Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are, listen to verse 24, we are justified, or in other words, we're made right before God, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He, has passed, he had passed over former sins. And so God, in our salvation, this is part of what's all ours in Christ, He gives us right standing with God. That means that you, when you stand before Christ, on that judgment day, you're, you're right before God. And this should cause us to absolutely be humble and swell with joy because we're right before God. And that's what justification is. And that leads us to the fourth thing under our fullness in Christ and the implications of the things that are ours is that we are adopted in Christ. This means that God is our Father. This is what Paul writes in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So what he's saying there is that God didn't save you so that then you would live sort of a, a, a meager, insecure existence, doubting yourself and where you stood with the creator of all things. But he saved you so that it would propel you into this level of relationship where you see God not just as your creator and justifier, but as your Father. This is what J.I. Packer writes in his book Knowing God. This is a classic. And this uh this book will, will be available, by the way, when we start to uh when we open up our, our resource room in a in a few weeks, Lord willing. I recommend again this book, Knowing God. By the way, I'm not giving away any of these books. I know you some of you are like, You're getting ready to <laughs> I give away books and I'm not giving these away. I'm sorry. Uh I will maybe someday in the future, but these are all marked up. This is what this is what uh Packer says. Just wanted to put you at ease. I saw the trigger. This is what Packer says about adoption. He says that it's the highest privilege of the gospel. Listen to this. This free gift of acquittal, he's speaking about justification. Now, this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, meaning Jesus' death and resurrection, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In other words, it's like. God is a judge and he has acquitted you because of what Christ has done for you. Christ has taken the penalty of sin for all those that would repent and trust in him. And so God in sort of a legal sort of sterile courtroom sense deems us justified because our sentence has been carried out by Christ and fulfilled. That's what that's what Christ did for us. But then he goes on to say, but contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. Conceived in the terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family in fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is a greater thing. Do you see the power, the beauty of this? A.W. Tozer, who is this pastor back in the 1900s, said that the most important thing about every man or woman or boy or girl is what they think about when they think about God. What do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about a righteous, mean, capricious, bad mood deity on the throne somewhere that is upset at you still because you've made a mess of your life? Or do you see a righteous loving Father who, for those who have believed and trusted in Christ, calls them in, doesn't just make them free of the penalty of sin, but calls them in as His own. Do you see God as a Father, as a loving Father? That's the beauty of adoption. We keep going. Number five here, let's get through this here. So we've got salvation, forgiveness of sins, justification, adoption, and by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just the things that were coming to my mind as I was meditating on all that is ours in Christ. Then number five, the righteousness of Christ. He saves us and He literally gives us His Spirit, His character, His righteousness so that we can live for Him. We read this verse a lot, Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, this is meaning God, He made Him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin... So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when Christ, when, when God the Father looks at you, he sees a few things. He sees for those, now this is only those who have repented and believed in Jesus. When, when God the Father looks at a Christian, no matter how meager or messed up your life is right now, when God looks at a Christian, this is what he sees. He sees, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees that you are justified, that your sin has been carried away. He sees No guilt of the stain of your sin. And then he sees Christ's righteousness, which has been transferred to you. And then he brings you in and loves you as a son or daughter. That's how God sees you. If that doesn't give you amazing confidence and free you from the petty little jealousies and envies and and, and things that hold us back, then then you need to dwell on that thing and let it stir in your heart this confidence in what Christ has done for you. And so that is the righteousness of Christ, which is ours. And then sixth and final point here is that what is ours in Christ is eternal life, which is Christ. Jesus writes, or John writes Jesus' words in John 17, 1 through 3. He says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life listen to this to give so jesus gives eternal life to all whom you have given so what is eternal life is it playing harps is it wearing a robe is it you know getting to hang out with our buddies is it you know getting all of our pets that have died before us is it what is it is it you know what what is eternal life is it is it riches is it No, no, eternal life is Christ. Verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is Christ. It's knowing God fully forever. John Piper, one of my favorite preachers, asked this question in one of his sermons that I listened to years ago, and I think it's the basis of his book, God is the Gospel. That our reward is not eternal life, apart. It's not just some blessing, but it is God Himself. And so if we could ask every American Christian, if you had, if you could know that in heaven you would receive every good gift and every benefit, but God would not be there, would you still want it? And the answer to that should be no. We 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 want Christ alone. He is our life. And so that's our fullness in Christ. And then this leads us now into. A freeness in Christ, a sort of detachment with the insecurities of this world. So, in the first first paragraph there that we read, the end of chapter three, Paul talks about all things that are ours, and then he transitions to specifically sort of defending his ministry. And in chapter four, verse one, he picks up, and what he starts to do here is he's defending himself against some of his opponents in Corinth, who are saying that he's not a real apostle and that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and they're on this guy's team and They're on this other guy's team. And so he's defending himself. And so now we see the consequences of what Paul wrote about at the end of chapter 3 with the freedom that we see in his soul. He says, this is how people should regard us in verse 1 of chapter 4, as stewards of the mystery of God. He says, if you're going to be a steward, verse 2, you should be found trustworthy. And then he talks about judgment, about sort of being sort of caught up in what other people think of you and whether or not the Corinthian church liked him or not or was buying into his leadership. But with me, verse 3, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So he's saying, hey, look, I don't have to stand before you. I don't even have to stand before my own sort of internal conscience, because even that is broken. And he says, it is the Lord who judges me. And so he's saying, because I'm full in Christ, there's this amazing freedom in Christ that comes An amazing detachment and a release from the insecurities of of this life and life together with other people. So understanding the fullness in Christ leads to freedom in Christ, which produces fruitfulness in Christ. And so how how does this now, bringing this down to a conclusion, how does this apply to our daily lives? Let me give you three things that understanding that we are full full and free in Christ destroys And then three things that understanding that we are full and free in Christ produces. So three things that understanding these truths destroys and then three things that it should produce in us. First thing that it should destroy in us is envy. Envy. Sort of self-centered jealousy. Really, if Christ, first of all, he's your creator. And if he made you... The way he made you, to lust for anything else is idolatry. If he made you 5'10", 185, and not a very good athlete, then for you to consistently lust for some athletic career well into your 30s is idolatry. I can remember, I don't know who I'm talking about here, but I can, I can remember the day, I've got, I got, got a witness, thank you, JJ. I can remember the day I was watching a college football game. I was watching USC, which is my geographical team of my youth. By the way, the University of Southern California, not, not South Carolina. And I can remember just sort of for the first time in my late 30s watching them and just sort of having this release in my soul like, I can enjoy this game and be just enjoy it and not be jealous of the fact that I am not 6'5", 220 pounds like Carson Palmer winning the Heisman Trophy. And it is okay. It's okay. And so for you, if, if, if you lust and covet and envy the gift of some other person or the station in life and some other person, you, you in essence are saying that Christ is And His sovereign providence in your life physically and His work on the cross to save you forever is not enough. Understanding fullness and freedom in Christ as we dwell on that again and again should progressively destroy envy in the life of a Christian. Secondly, it should destroy insecurity. Envy and insecurity are like twin brothers. They go together. It should destroy idolatrous comparison in our lives. It should destroy competition and maneuvering and political working in a church to try and make yourself more prominent or to make... It about you instead of about Christ. It should destroy our self-idolizing insecurities. And it should destroy, thirdly, it should destroy pride and arrogance. It should smash it like an idol. And oh, how I need to hear that again and again. Because I am oftentimes vexed with envy, with insecurity, and pride. And oh, how I need to remember again and again the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the work in Christ, my salvation, my forgiveness, my justification, my adoption, my imputed righteousness and my right standing with God forever and eternity. Oh, how that helps in my heart when I think about it to destroy envy, insecurity and pride. And then you know what that does? It produces a good day for me. It makes me a better husband. It makes me a more gentle and humble father. Do you see how these great truths of the gospel actually produce in us the very thing that we instinctively go to first before the gospel? So those are the things that it should destroy and these are the things that it should produce. And I end with this. We've talked about this has been woven into everything I've said. It should produce in us a joy. We have Christ. We have all there is to gain. All is yours, Christian. That should produce a joy. A couple of weeks ago, I read that quote from Peter Kraft, that, that writer who wrote a book called Heaven. And he talked about, if you could go in a crystal ball trip to heaven and see what is yours in eternity with Christ, would you not return to your present day life fearless and singing? Who cares what these 60 years that I may have left should God give me them bring because I have eternal joy with him so who cares so I don't need to be caught up in my worldly success or the numbers of people or my salary or whether my kids are this or that of course I labor and I work because I want to be a good representation of God's good grace but I am released from an obsession with these 80 years because eternal joy is mine. That's what the gospel produces in you a sort of otherworldliness, a gravity that only speaks and is pointed towards heaven because that is your home. A joy that transcends temporal circumstances that don't go our way. A joy that transcends setbacks in the job and in the home and in relationship. A joy that transcends all of that. Because to have Christ is to have all. And understanding the gospel should produce that joy. And it should produce an abiding confidence in us. A sort of gravity that the world cannot shake. A sense that... I know what my future is and I know what my present is and I know that my past has been washed away by the blood of Christ and it's a, a sort of confidence that means you don't get knocked off your horse easy by, by, by circumstances or by critique or criticism or by people that sin against you. It's like, confidence in the fact that you know as Paul writes to Timothy I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is more than able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day that's confidence and then that brings us to the third thing that understanding the gospel and all the fullness that it is ours in Christ should produce and it may seem counterintuitive and what it should produce in us is work here and now Because we miss it if we think, oh, well, God has saved me, and so I can just detach. I'm just, you know, going to live for heaven, and who cares about what happens here on this earth? So what? i got 50 years. I've got eternity with Christ. So what? I mean, I don't care. I'm not going to be productive. I'm just going to be a Christian and consume and consume good sermons and sing the songs that I like and read the books that I like, and I'm going to let it all dead end on me, if that is the way we subconsciously live out the gospel, we are missing the whole point of the display of God's glory in our lives here on this earth. And so when we understand that God has given us all these things, it should produce in us this joy to actually in this time that God has given us here on this earth still to work and to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel here and now here and now to work and this should produce radical obedience in the lives of young people and old people it should mean that there's 20 year olds in this room that are willing to not go to work and just get a job and punch a ticket but maybe god is calling you to go and give up your life to some foreign land for the sake of the gospel because all is yours in christ and it means that if you're retired man god doesn't want you to waste your life on golf and fish. Not that there's anything wrong with golfing and fishing, but when you give your life to it, you waste your life. And so he might say to a couple in their mid-60s, give your life away to the gospel, and for the next 10 or 15 years that God gives you, work, work, pour out the gift of all that is yours in Christ onto somebody else, so that through you, God can spread a fragrance of His love and His gospel to others. It produces in us, a sort of detachment with consequences and an ability to give ourselves to the work of god recklessly with joy and confidence and so friends do we understand all that is ours in christ jesus christian are you are you like me so often are you caught up in the little trivial petty insecurities of the day what does he think of me what is she saying about me how is this going to work out do I need to do this or that are you caught up in the little muck and mire of of our little small things like I am so often well let the fullness of all that Christ has done for you produce in you a freedom Produce in you a freedom for the sake of God's glory and your joy. For those of you that are in this room that are not yet a believer in Jesus, I pray that God's Holy Spirit would have, has made that evident to you if you are not. Sometime this morning, I pray right now that you would trust in Christ. What, you, what, you, what must you do to become a Christian? This is what Jesus says. He says that you must repent, which means to turn from trusting in yourself and turn from sin, and that you must believe. That means you must trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you as your sole reason for right standing with God. It means that Jesus took your penalty on the cross and he bore it to the end. He satisfied completely God's wrath against you for you. If you will repent and trust in Him. So you must do that right now. And you say, I don't know if I can do that. Listen, if you're even hearing me say these things right now, I believe that's evidence that God is making your heart alive and in fact giving you the gift of faith. And so exercise the gift. Exercise the gift that God is giving you right now. And trust in Christ alone. Not in yourself. Not in your relative goodness. But trust in Christ. And the Bible says that when you do that, you are born again. You're alive. You're giving evidence to the fact that God has saved you. Do that even right now. Even right now. Right now. In your heart, in your mind. Trust. Decide. Follow Christ. Trust in Him, not in yourself. Let's pray and ask the Lord to seal these things in our heart. Lord, as we come now to a time of response to Your Word, I do pray that You would take these words and that you would make them like an arrow that would stick fast to our heart. Things that were unnecessary or untrue maybe that I have spoken, I pray that you would cause those words to fall to the ground. But things that were from heaven and from you for us, I pray that you would cause them to stick fast. I pray that Christians in this room like myself who are caught up in petty insecurities and jealousies and lust and envy and idolatry and self-centeredness, I pray, God, that as Edwards wrote, that you would stir our affections, that you would shed the love of Christ abroad in our hearts so that we would worship you more passionately and as a result so that we would be a more pleasing aroma to you which then causes unbelievers to see you more so that even as I realize these truths and worship you and live it out in my daily life, I am, in fact, in a sense, carrying on evangelism by worshiping you. God, would you do that in my heart and in the hearts of the Christians in this room. And Lord, for people in this room that do not know Jesus, I pray that you would give them honesty. Today is the day of salvation. What does it profit a soul? Should he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Lord, I pray that you would impress upon the heart of a person who is proud and religious that they can't trust on themselves. They must trust on you. I don't care if they grew up in church or if they they've done a million things seemingly for you I pray God that today maybe today they would trust in you And God for that person who maybe got drug here or just sneaked in the back and they think that there's no way that they, that you could forgive a sinner like them that has done the things that they have done God I pray that they would stop idolizing their sin over your cross that they would stop esteeming their sin as more powerful than your grace and that today for the first time they would trust in you alone God would you do that Would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God? I pray that you do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. I pray it in Jesus' mighty, matchless, good name. Amen.